dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here live until uh, midnight. Let me uh, let me turn the, the K-pop down here for just a second. That's, that is the wrong side of the globe. For St. Patrick's Day 2018, uh, by the way, um, uh, this is a great night for Uber, isn't it? If you don't know this, there's a lot of checkpoints out there. And so if you are, uh, that was the mic, flexible arm, wasn't me. That's, that is actually the sound it makes. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of checkpoints out there. So if you're drinking deeply from uh, the cup of life tonight, then uh, choose wisely. Uh, well, the mayor of, I, I just have to get to this right now. The mayor of New York City, George, uh, uh, Bill de Blasio, named today Jerry Adams Day. If that name rings a bell, then maybe you were paying attention to the, uh, the negotiations uh, of the, um, between the IRA and uh, Great Britain that led to a ceasefire. Jerry Adams ostensibly was the front man for a political organization called Sinn Féin, which supposedly had no ties to the IRA, a terrorist organization, going back over 100 years. And I'll I'll tell you the story of the Black and Tans a little later on. They were a force pulled together by Winston Churchill, none other than Winston Churchill, after the 1916 uprising. When the IRA attempted to stab Britain in the back by a, 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 a second front, a revolution in the middle of World War One, The IRA has its history, and for some reason there is a particular flavor of American who likes to romanticize the IRA. But the fact of the matter is that though the IRA was supposedly an independence organization, by the 70s, by the late 60s and 70s, they were a communist organization trained and directed in many cases by the KGB uh, and supplied by the Libyans. There was a, a Libyan ship full of AK-47s was intercepted by, by the British in the 70s. The, the IRA were not good guys. The, the IRA attacked innocent civilians uh, in, in Northern Ireland. Innocent Protestant civilians, of course, was their primary target. And then they took the war to the mainland, London, the uh, the Herod's bombing, uh, etc. The IRA were not good guys, and honoring a terrorist is just not a thing you do. Of course, uh, Yasser Arafat has a Nobel Peace Prize, um, you know, and that's to the shame of the Nobel Prize Committee because the, the, what what he negotiated with Israel didn't actually turn into lasting peace. Uh, and you know, there should be like a ten year there should be a nomination process for a peace prize. And then a 10-year waiting period, like a like buying a gun in California or something. But anyway, Jerry Adams is the head of, of Sinn Féin. And now, um, years later, we know, uh, both f- from sources in the IRA and sources in British journalism who, who were not exactly supporting the Crown in the, the long civil war from 1969 uh, until, until the early ni- mid-90s, journalists now agree, generally have come together and said, yeah, you know what, Uh, 
Jerry Adams should probably come forward in sort of a truth and reconciliation South Africa kind of way. And even even uh, I, Irish officials, both in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is still part of the UK, by the way, even they have said, you know, it would go a long way if Jerry Adams to just admit that he was actually an IRA guy all along. But anyway, Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, called today uh, Jerry Adams Day in New York City. And that's it's so naive of him. And then, as I say, there's this weird streak of Americans who who had in, in the 70s and 80s, including Ted Kennedy, this sympathy for the IRA, for this terrorist organization that was fighting our closest ally, Great Britain. The song I play, you come out, ye black and tans. Again, I'll, I'll explain it later on. It has, a, it has a great history. It's one of my favorite Irish songs, but it is a rebel song. Uh, and so what I did was uh, I have a print. I, there, there's a, a great former Irish bar called Tom Bergen. On Fairfax, it it had Tom Bergen opened it, and then he sold it to TK. TK owned Tom Bergen for years, for decades. Then he sold it to a company that's, that was out of state, place went in the pooper. A new guy bought it, and he redid it. It was great. It just wasn't viable. So it just closed right before St. Patrick's Day, Tom Bergen closed. Um, w- w- before they reopened, uh, TK, m- m- the longtime owner, he gave me a couple items of memorabilia from – uh, the original Tom Bergen. One of them was this gigantic framed tribute with all these tickets and uh, and and race day uh, forums and a portrait of the famous Irish thoroughbred Ragusa from 1963. This beautiful framed thing. And if you follow me on on Twitter at Dark Secret Place, you've you've seen it. Uh, the other thing he gave me is a framed print of Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. It was built in 1798, but it's a famous place because a lot of the 1916 Easter Uprising IRA officials were kept in Kilmainham uh, Jail there in the center of London. In fact, many of them were executed there. Uh, some of the famous executions were the, like the guys who couldn't even stand up, who the British tied with ropes to benches and stood them up against the wall. And the, the future president of Ireland, Eamon de Valera, uh, the American, as played by Alan Rickman. In uh, Michael Collins, uh, Eamon de Valera was, was held there. Anyway, I have a print. I, the print is from 1933. It was framed uh, here by uh, on La Cienega in 1933 by Munn Pictures and Framing. And I have the provenance of it, uh, of the, the tag, the whole thing. And I'm auctioning it. I'm going to auction it on, on Twitter. So go and find uh, my Twitter feed for today. You'll see a picture of the print. Bid on it by replying to the to the tweet and I, the, what, whoever the high bid is, I'm going to donate that money to the SAS regimental association, the British special air service, because the IRA, Yikes. oh, son of a bitch, the SAS ripped those guys new rectums. They hated the SAS. The British from 1969 on were fighting the IRA with regular troops, young guys, 19 year olds, 20 year olds. And yeah, they weren't really into it. They didn't want to be there. They were getting sniped at. When the British sent the SAS into Northern Ireland, they ripped through the IRA so effectively that the IRA printed a training manual called What to Do If You're Captured by the SAS. And what they taught their members on page one was, first of all, you probably won't survive the encounter because the SAS don't take prisoners. Secondly, if they take you alive, there's a reason they took you alive. And you're not going to be alive for very long. Hold out as long as you can. Uh, they hated the SAS, and I can't think of anything to piss off IRA apologists like Bill de Blasio more 
than a contribution to the SAS Regimental Association, which is a charity uh, in Britain. And so I, I thought I would donate the money in the name of Bill de Blasio because to this day, former IRA fighters have nightmares about their encounters with the British SAS. In fact, the SAS were so effective that politically, eventually, Thatcher had to call the dogs off, which is uh, a, a direct correlation to this organization that Winston Churchill put together called the Black and Tans, who who did similar work in, in uh, 1918, 1919, 1920, and, and uh, 21 in, in Ireland. The, bla the Black and Tans were so infamous. They were so effective. They were so ruthless, so brutal as counterinsurgents that one of the best, one of the most famous Irish drinking songs of all time is dedicated to them. The song, Come Out Ye Black and Tans. There, there are songs about the British SAS. There are poems, but there's ne never anything that's ever become popular because the, uh, the, the, the SAS scare the Irish so much that they probably don't even want to sing about them. So go to my uh, Twitter feed and, uh, and uh, start bidding, and we'll call it, uh, I don't know, I'll give it like two days. Uh, something like that. And, oh, it's not going to end on St. Patrick's. Uh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't want to sell it short. I want to. I want to get the most as I can out of it. So if you want to check it out on at Dark Secret Place on Twitter, bid on it. Um, I, I'd like to start the bidding like at fifty bucks, uh, and and we'll include shipping in that. Whatever whatever the winning bid is, I'll make sure that that uh, that includes uh, that includes shipping. So uh, what's left over after the 10 bucks, uh, you know, to, to ship it, or I can, if you're in the LA area, I, we can meet halfway wherever you are, but it's, a, it's a cool little print, beautiful little print of a famous jail in Dublin that the, that the IRA hated. And I will donate the money to the SAS regimental association. And that's going to be on the, Britain. on the, uh, it's the not, listing it, that, that kind of should be, I would think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want, you're duping some, uh. Some drunken Irishman is like, "Hey, look at that!" <laughs> oh, well, that's where my grandfather was held. By golly, old, uh, yeah. By that, oh, where's the money going? Mm. Oh, the yes, yes, son of a bitch. Um, we'll uh, be back right after this. Assassination is on the menu because we're talking about the attempted assassination of a former, uh, former Russian spy, and uh, it, it, we're talking, talking about a lot of spy games and maybe the the restart of a well, a war that never went away. The War Between the Spies. So famous assassinations by the KGB when we come back. It is d the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. <laughs> If I am 640, more stimulating talk. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all you patties, all you, uh, all you fake Irish. So assassination is certainly in the news. And if uh, you're unaware, this is sort of um, business as usual for the former KGB. And uh, in fact, some of the other secret services from the former Warsaw Pact. And uh, in, in, in fact, you can go back to the assassination of uh, Leon Trotsky in Mexico City in the 30s. That the, the one pattern in assassination, 
if you're going down the checklist saying, how likely am I to be assassinated by Vladimir Putin? Well, uh, question number one, have you done anything personal? Have you revealed to the world what many, many of his former KGB colleagues know, that he's a pedophile? He's, he's a gay pedophile. He likes little boys. Have you done that? Have you done that on a major radio station in Los Angeles? Well, I've never heard that. Really? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. That's what got Alexander Litvinenko his polonium tea. Because really? He knew that. He was a colleague of Putin. He knew that uh, the KGB itself had video of Putin, had framed Putin. Uh, and and had him by the Putins, had him had him by the nuts, and he covers this up, obviously as you can see, uh, violently. So all those pictures of him riding a horse without a shirt is not to excite the female population. No, and doesn't it always seem a little bit like it's over overcompensating? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, uh, yeah. It's boiling out here as I'm riding this horse. I better peel my shirt off. I better suck in the it's gut because the. Uh, all you ladies, you can uh, you can see how manly I am. It, it, and and by the way, he's uh, short too. Right? Yeah, and you know that Alexander Medvedev, uh, boy, he's a good-looking young guy too. Um, they he seems really close with Putin, but you're not supposed to talk about that. So, but this this goes back to Stalin, and actually goes back to the czars. So Stalin, when the Great Schism after Lenin died, and the power struggle between Trotsky and Stalin occurred. Stalin won because he's a bastard. Trotsky was not a bastard, so Stalin won. But he wasn't satisfied letting Trotsky just disappear to obscurity to Mexico City because Trotsky kept writing. So he warned him and he warned him and he warned him. Finally, he sent an assassin, and he wanted it done in a spectacular and very public way. And he didn't want Trotsky th pushed in front of a train. Not like, not like uh, President Underwood in, in, in House of Cards. No, he wanted it public, and it there should be n no question about who did it. So Trotsky was was chopped in the head with an ice axe. Yes, the same kind of ice axe that Sir Edmund Hillary used on Everest. You know, with a long pointy end, oh. and then a, a, a horizontal blade on the other. Yeah, Trotsky got it bad. It was a bad scene. And recently, the the axe has recently been unearthed. Uh, has been found the actual axe. But so. <clears throat> And then we go fast forward into the 50s and 60s. The number one sin that the Soviet Union suffered was, uh, was slander. If anyone defected and didn't shut up, if they defected and suddenly badmouthed the Soviet Union, they might get a visit from somebody. And either it would look like an accident or it would, for, for a very public purpose, not look like an accident. And this extended to the satellite states like Bulgaria, East Germany, et cetera. Uh, East, the East German communists took it very personal that West Germany was exploding, was prospering. And uh, the, the East Germans' sphere of influence, the KGB assigned to the East Germans the obvious primary job of spying on West Germany because they could send agents there with accentless German a lifelong knowledge of growing up German, you know, the whole thing. So the East Germans had West Germany by the nuts. The West German politicians in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, and the 80s, uh, were, the West German parliament was was hope, hopelessly penetrated by the East German intelligence service, the Stasi. Um, the Czechs were also very good. Uh, they had They were good enough that the KGB would contract them out to do stuff in America, here in Burbank. 
Um, uh, famously, there was a couple, a Polish couple here in the 80s who were getting information on the stealth fighter at, at Lockheed, right up the street at Hollywood Way there at Burbank Airport when it was uh, still Lockheed. Uh, they were very good at that. But but the Russians would put a priority on assassination when somebody embarrassed Russia. Uh, for instance, um, the, uh, the case of uh, Georgi Markov, a Bulgarian dissident. Uh, a guy who wrote plays and poems that were very famous in Bulgaria. And uh, he found a way to get out of Bulgaria without jumping a fence and moving to Italy and defecting. He defects and he doesn't shut up. He keeps writing. Uh, but now he can write even more. Uh, by, uh, by 1978, he was actually working for the, uh, the BBC and also Radio Free Europe. He was giving... Uh, broadcast to Radio Free Europe that were in Bulgarian, uh, beamed into Bulgaria, because he personally knew the Bulgarian leader. He personally knew the guy, and he personally insulted him. And the uh, Bulgarian leader went to the KGB, Todor Zhivkov, went to the KGB, and he said, I can't have this guy. I cannot have it. We don't have anyone else. We don't have athletes. No one else is defecting. This guy sitting there in London just talking that crap about me, I, I got to take him out. And the KGB held him off for a couple of years. But finally, in 1978, they said, all right, what are you going to do? And they said, okay, I have a plan, and I'll tell you what it is. Right after this, Waterloo Bridge, 1978. The uh, history of assassination from uh, the Russians and KGB. Here's the Dark Secret Place. Brian suits in here until midnight, KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI. And I don't have the patience for rank and file right now tonight. Uh, it is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight for St. Patrick's Day. By the way, next hour, you have heard of the film Eagle has Landed. Everyone's guilty pleasure. One of the best World War II movies. Of course, it's fiction. Donald Sutherland, Robert Duvall, Michael Caine, all of them at the Heidler Powers. Great movie based on the Jack Higgins novel. But it's fiction. There never was an attempt to assassinate Hitler. Pardon me, uh, Churchill. Hitler never had that much of a vendetta against specifically Churchill. But did you know that there actually was a German plot to assassinate Churchill and Stalin and FDR? At the Tehran Big Three meeting in 1943, you didn't know that? Next hour, I will tell you about the most spectacular assassination that never happened. Anyway, back to uh, the Russians killing people. <clears throat> so in this case, they're leg humpers, Bulgaria. By uh, 1978, Georgi Markov was the most prominent Bulgarian defector dissident, even working for the BBC. He was on his way in London on Waterloo Bridge to his gig at the BBC one morning when he felt a sharp pain in the back of his right thigh. He turns around. There's a guy picking up an umbrella. He crosses Waterloo Bridge, crosses the street, gets in a cab, and drives off. Gergi Markov makes it to the BBC. By the time he's at the BBC, this mark uh, on his back leg has turned into sort of a bump, a pimple, and it still hurts. And it gets worse. 
he feels like it's a bug bite or a, or a sting. So he tells one of his colleagues, oh, yeah, I'm on the Waterloo Bridge. And some there's a sharp pain in my thigh. I turn around. There's a guy. He's dropped an umbrella. Uh, he doesn't make eye contact with me. Picks it up, you know, runs off. I think he poked me in the back of the leg. That evening, he goes home, develops a fever. He was admitted to hospital. He died four days later. On 11 September 1978, he was 49 years old. Cause of death was poisoning from a tiny pellet, a one-millimeter pellet made of uh, iridium and platinum. And it had two holes in it, and in the holes was a tiny bit of ricine. Ricine is yielded from castor beans. When people try to make it at home, they die, inevitably. Castor beans, as it turns out, are incredibly toxic if treated the correct way. So he was killed in a clearly spectacular, unique way. They didn't push him into traffic. They didn't throw him into the river and drown him. They didn't shoot him in the head in a failed robbery. They didn't stab him in a failed robbery. They assassinated him in a way that would send a message to all defectors that whoever you are will get you. Not only will we get you, you have a really ugly death waiting for you. That was 1978. What could top the assassination of a dissident. Well, in 1981, when we come back, how about the attempted assassination of a Polish guy? We'll uh, talk about that right after this. Brian Suits uh, in here till midnight. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place for... Your St. Patrick's Day 2018 and uh, getting back to uh, Russia and assassination. So you have to know that uh, there is no target that's off limits when you threaten the stability of the old Soviet Union or current Russia. There is none. And if you, like, for instance, Barack Obama, think that all the bad stuff about the Soviet Union went away when the Soviet Union went away, then you need to know that the Soviet Union was always uh, a, a exoskeleton of an intelligence organization called the KGB, who had a precursor called the NKVD and a precursor called the Cheka. And point in fact, uh, secret police were the life's blood of czarist Russia. If, if you've ever read the novel, Dr. Javago or seen the book, remember Rod Steiger's character, the ultimate survivor? He's a monarchist secret policeman until the communist takeover happens. Then he's a communist uh, secret policeman. And, and this is just the way it is. Um, <clears throat> so the, some of the outlying Warsaw Pact, Bulgaria assassinating the uh, dissident Gergi Markov of 1978 with a tiny little poison bead with ricine in it. And, and it was a little confusing by the Western media at the time in 1978 when it came out, this dissident was killed because the, the question was, well, why would they do it in such a way that's so unique so that it clearly wasn't random street violence? They were missing that in asking the question, they were answering it. It was done so that there would be absolutely no question who did it sending a message to both the British government and anyone considering defection and then slandering Bulgaria or Russia. Well, then in 1978, this thing happened. A pope named John Paul croaked in his sleep. What was he, the 40-day pope? 
the, the last Italian pope. And the papal see gets together. The white smoke comes out. Voila. Carol Wojtyla, former bishop of Krakow, is now the pope. He is now John Paul II, this Polak, this Polish dude. But by the way, the Polish word for a person from Poland is Polak. Okay. Um, so here's a, this Polish dude is now the pope. And the nation of Poland is filled with enthusiasm. And there is a reinvigoration of, uh, of Catholicism, which officially there were no official religions in Germany anymore, Czechoslovakia, Poland. But, there were, but you can't take the Catholic out of the pole. If you've ever been to Poland or you know any Poles, and you should know this. You know this, okay? So now this guy is the Pope. And you know what he starts talking about in Polish? He's, he's not only giving speeches in, in Latin and sometimes in English and Spanish. He's, he's giving specific addresses in Polish. They're going to be absolutely no other interpretation of why he's doing this. He's trying to agitate the Polish people to ask for religious freedom, personal freedom, etc. And it's no coincidence that at the same time, the Polish trade union organization Solidarity springs up in the shipyards of Gdansk on the Baltic coast. I mean, after all, it's a worker's paradise, right? And isn't that the ultimate hypocrisy if you're not going to let us organize as ship workers? I mean, and the Polish communists said, yeah, but we're all a union. You don't need a union. We're all a union. There's no more bosses. This is, this is communism. It's perfect. You don't need to be a union. But as it turns out, you can't stop union guys from unioning. Well, meanwhile, the Soviet Union is next door, and they're watching this crap happen. Now it's, now it's the 80s, and it's 1980. And Yuri Andropov, at the time, was, uh, was, was the man in charge. Former KGB head, by the way. And he sees what's happening, and he says, you know what? We're going we're gonna to head this horse off at the pass. This only goes one way. This guy continues to agitate the polls. They want to organize. They want to be a union. Next thing they're going to want to do is vote for crap. Next thing they're going to want to do is, is have a union guy run for mayor of Gdansk or the city council. And, and, you know, I see where this is going and I don't like it because when this starts in Poland, guess who's next? Those freaking checks. Those checks are so full of themselves. You know, they, they already rose up in 68. Never mind the Hungarians in 56. So we put the Hungarians down hard. We put the checks down in 68 hard. There's no way in 1980. I'm going to go through that same crap. Kill this dude. But how do we do it? Well, the KGB turned to their old buddies, the Bulgarian Intelligence Service. <clears throat> and the Bulgarian Intelligence Service had access to a whole lot of terrorists that they had been training. Uh, if, if you think that the PLO was some organic terrorist organization and had no external assistance whatsoever, then let me tell you all about the 70s and 80s. Uh, yes, the KGB would supply them with whatever they needed. The Czechs gave them Semtex, which was an explosive that was developed in Czechoslovakia. You you don't have it unless the Czechs would give it to you, and the PLO had it. And they have a guy. They have a guy, a trained terrorist. He's a little crazy, but he is he's a Turk. He's ethnically a Turk, and he is from Bulgaria. There are many Turks in Bulgaria, and his name is Mohammed Ali Agcha. 
And with the proper haircut and the right shave, he can pass for Italian. So beginning in August of 1980, they start bouncing him around the Mediterranean where the KGB and the Bulgarian Secret Service give him passports, change his ID, give him a new legend, new credit cards, the whole thing. By 13 May 1981, the KGB is aware. They've been made aware by the Bulgarian Secret Service. Our guy is in place. He is in Rome. He is armed. He has a Confederate. He's got a getaway driver. Um, we have the plan. The, the This Pope, John Paul II, this guy, he drives around in an unarmored open Jeep. Can you believe that? It's like he's 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 mocking us. He's inviting us to do this. And Andropov says, do it. So on 13 May 1981, Mohammed Ali Agsha shoots the Pope. Bang, 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 bang. With a uh, Browning high power, 9mm handgun. Um, specifically, he sat in the square writing postcards. When the Pope passed through an adoring and excited crowd of supporters, he fired four shots at 5.17 p.m. with a 9mm Browning high power. And like most people in Europe, he used full metal jacket, hardball rounds, and the Pope, not surprisingly, lived. Critically wounded, four bullets in him. Um, he fled the scene. He was photographed fleeing the scene. He was grabbed, however, by the uh, Vatican security. Those guys in, in underwear, those those guys with the brightly colored things and the, the, and the pig stickers, the lances, they, they actually do something. They, they grab the guy. Um, all four bullets hit John Paul II. Two of them lodged in his lower intestine. Two hit his left index finger. Uh, there was a bystander from Buffalo, New York, struck in the chest. He was incarcerated, sentenced to life imprisonment, um, and he eventually did give up who he was there on behalf of Bulgarian intelligence, which is, by the way, if you can't figure it out, Bulgarian intelligence in 1981 was a branch office for the KGB. So bottom line, the KGB tried to kill the Pope. So as you see, there is, there's no limit. Now they did, to be honest, by using a Muslim— who agreed to a cover story. His original, the plan was, was him for to be picked up by his partner. And in the confusion that was going to overtake Rome, they were going to go to the Bulgarian embassy for exit. They're going to take on new IDs. They were going to be on a flight the next day back to Sofia, Bulgaria. Um, in this case, the Russians actually wanted deniability. They didn't want the world to know that they had just killed the Pope. First of all, they assumed you get four bullets in the guts. You're going to die. But they didn't use the right gun through some miracle, not the right bullets, and, and he lived. And so to this day, there's people who actually honestly believe that a lone guy, perhaps working for the Bulgarians, tried to kill the Pope. And they don't honestly want to believe that the Soviet Union in 1981 had no problem whatsoever assassinating the Pope. And so the... Uh, the uh, History of assassination from the KGB and from the Russians, whether it's monarchic, czarist Russia, communist Russia, or today, Vladimir Putin. This is just how they operate. And, and what they did two weeks ago in Salisbury by, again, the same MO, they used an exotic. They could have made it look like a street crime. They could have made it look like a robbery gone bad. Right? You know what? Robberies go bad in Britain. They could have done that, but they did not. They used an exotic. They used a 
aerosoled, powdered, specific nerve gas that was only developed in the Soviet Union and then Russia that no one else possesses because they wanted to send that message. And they also are taking the measure of the rest of the world, that when Russia says, no, we didn't do it, those aren't my pants, that most of the world doesn't want a confrontation with Russia, and they're using that against us. So when he says, those aren't my pants, most people accept that and go, well, he said they didn't do it. Well, Putin's a snake. Putin is a KGB guy. This is what he did. Keeps getting away with it. Oh, yeah. And the British are now reopening a bunch of accidental deaths and suicides and things like that. A weird thing, the Russian oligarchs who love owning apartments in London or soccer teams, if they go there as Russian citizens and they intend to come back to Moscow, they tend to stay healthy. The minute they get a permanent address there and don't come back and they start maybe revealing that, um, uh, that Putin is an extraordinarily vindictive guy and a sociopath, and oh, by the way, a pedophile, <clears throat> that all of a sudden they, they start having nasty accidents. Falling, falling out of their four-story window onto a wrought iron spiked fence, which is how, how most people commit suicide, right? Oops, bad aim. So, uh, so this, this time, possibly he's done it. And, the, and again, the greatest weakness, the Achilles heel for Russia is world opinion. And if the boycott for the World Cup in Russia later on this summer, if that builds, Putin's going to be pissed. Wow. That's your assassination. You think that's going to take hold? The uh, boycott of the World Cup? No, the British don't have the ball sack for that. Mm. They do not. Neither do the Europeans. What would it take for him to not be reelected? I mean, he's 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 clearly going to be the... 102% turnout. R- uh, right. <laughs> um, wh- I mean, what, what would... What would make the Russian people turn against him? If he starts losing money for the oligarchs, he might eat a bullet. Problem is, though, he's a KGB guy. He knows anyone who has the potential. He knows how to kill first. He knows where all the skeletons are are hidden because he's hidden most of them. Um, yeah. You know, he, he doesn't want to invade America. He just wants Russia to be ru- filled with Russians. And if you get in his way, this is what you get. Because he knows that the Europeans don't have the backbone to stand up to him. He, he's he's bluffing. He has a first-class military and a third-class economy. He has an economy smaller than Italy. And no one in Europe will stand up to this guy. Uh, next hour, the incredible story of Operation Long Jump. The true story of a true assassination plot. Not Never mind the eagle has landed. The, the movie that's never been made. The German assassination plot in 1943 designed in one fell swoop to kill Stalin, Churchill, and FDR in Tehran, Iran, uh, next hour. It's the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits uh, in here till midnight, KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Hour number two. Brian Suits in here live until midnight. Happy... Uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day, everybody drives safe. You know, there's a lot of checkpoints out there. And, uh, you know, a $10 Uber ride is quite a bit cheaper than a, uh, you know, $8,000 DUI. So anyway, I, um, I hope all, all, all the well for, for all of you. So let's talk about Unternehmen Russelsprung, or Operation Long Jump. It's an amazing story, and you've probably never heard it. I'm assuming if you're a KFI listener, I mean, a Dark Secret Place listener, you're probably a fan of a good war film, right? A good yarn. And I think universally, 
everyone who's a war buff has probably seen The Eagle Has Landed, right? 1977, from the Jack Higgins novel of the same name, about a fictional German plot to kidnap or, worst case, assassinate Winston Churchill in uh, the months leading up to D-Day. Um, it is a classic movie. <clears throat> of course, Michael Caine, Donald Sutherland, um, Robert Duvall, even Donald Pleasance as Heinrich Himmler, all of those actors at the height of their superpowers. Michael Caine plays Oberst Kurt Steiner, Colonel Kurt Steiner, loosely based on the very real German commando Otto Skorzeny, uh, a very real actual person, the guy who led the raid in September of 1943 to free Mussolini from his mountain prison, where when Mussolini was deposed, he was sent up in the Alps where he couldn't escape. Hitler wanted his friend back. He sent his best commando and, a, and his crack team of commandos to rescue Mussolini, and they did. And it was daring. It was astounding. And it's the inspiration for The Eagle Has Landed. And The Eagle Has Landed, uh, as you all recall, has uh, uh, Robert Duvall playing a, a German counterintelligence operative who's been tasked with the unenviable job of coming up with a study about how to kill or capture Winston Churchill. Little does he know, after he spends all this time doing it, little does he know, as he put things together, that it's actually a viable plan. And he gives the plan to, um, to his commander, who rejects it. But little does he know, Heinrich Himmler himself finds the plan and sets Duval out to execute the plan. So Duval finds Michael Caine. Michael Caine is the commando Kurt Steiner, but what he doesn't know is that the guy in a an, in an, uh, silly act ruined his career and has been condemned, and all of his men, uh, to do nothing but raids against uh, British uh, you know, naval ships. You all know the movie. I'm not going to go into it uh, anymore. Here's a famous scene. This is Robert Duvall and Donald Pleasance, uh, spectacular as Heinr Heinrich Himmler. May I smoke, Herr Reichsführer? No. A masterful job. Thank you, Herr Reichsführer. But you know, there are some people who would say that uh, such an operation could make the charge of the Light Brigade look like a sensible military exercise. <laughs> okay. Jack Higgins wrote the novel, bestseller, turns, turns into a terrific movie, one of the most watchable World War II movies. And of course, the punchline is, it was fictional, right? There was never any attempt to assassinate or execute Winston Churchill, right? Because that would have been stupid. Churchill was too heavily protected. Um, it gets better than that. It really, truly gets better than that. Because in real life, there was a German operation. There, there were several famous assassination plans. One of them was the British study of the assassination of Hitler which actually the, the went fairly far. They went to the point of almost selecting personnel to do it. But in the end, the British realized, you know what? He's better alive because he is making some of the stupidest strategic decisions 
anybody has ever seen. They just invented jets, and he's turning them into bombers. Um, and so they realized that Hitler was his own worst enemy, so why assassinate him? Because somebody more competent might take charge. So it was never enacted. But there was another plan. <clears throat> this one actually originating from Hitler, just like the eagle has landed, um, being handed to uh, a, a division of Himmler's SS, the, uh, the Reich Security Department, the SD. And the plan was this. Supposedly, the American Naval Code had been broken by late 1943 by the Germans. And they intercepted references to something called Eureka. And Eureka was supposed to happen in late November and early December of 1943. Then it was discovered that it was actually supposed to happen in Tehran, Iran, which the Allies were occupying. Because pre-war, the Shah, Shah Reza, showed uh, unequivocal sympathies towards Hitler. So uh, Britain and Russia primarily occupied Iran because it was the primary route for Lend-Lease equipment from the United States into Russia. And what they discovered as they continued uh, developing this information was that Eureka was what we now know as the Tehran Conference. Eureka would see Winston Churchill himself coming to Tehran to meet with Joseph Stalin at the Russian embassy. And oh, by the way, FDR would ride the USS Iowa across the Atlantic around uh, the uh, Cape of Good Hope, Africa, uh, and arrive in Tehran in time for the conference. So in other words, the big three would be there. FDR, Churchill, and Stalin. Well, as it happened, the Iranians, the Persians, were so sympathetic to the Germans pre-war that it was a very easy place for the Germans to place spies. By November of 1943, the Germans had over 400 active spies in Tehran alone. They were primarily concerned with tracking shipments of equipment that was making its way to Russia. Um, but they were alerted for a far different thing by uh, September of 1943. And that would be the assassination or kidnapping of the big three. An impossible mission, you say? Uh, breach the Soviet embassy in Tehran and get a team into the room late at night where the leaders were drinking, where Churchill by 10 p.m. would be absolutely blotto. Stalin usually had had a couple, and yes, FDR did drink. So would there be a way to get enough men into a room that you could, worst case scenario, just machine gun those three guys and assassinate the three leaders who have come together as an allied force to defeat the Third Reich? Well, somebody did a study. And this is not fiction. So we'll continue when we come back. Operation Long Jump was a real operation. And as you probably know, spoiler alert, it didn't succeed. But how close was it to succeeding? We'll talk about that in the background when we come back and talk about Unternehmen Rosselsprung Operation Long Jump. Uh, in World War II, Brian Suits here, The Dark Secret Place, back in a moment. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. 
KFI AM, 640 more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight live on St. Patrick's Day. And we're talking about Operation Long Jump. There there were several high-profile assassination uh, plots, famous assassination plots during World War II. The most successful was the American operation to shoot down Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto's uh, transport aircraft, uh, actually a bomber, in World War II. And the U.S. Army Air Corps sent a, uh, sent a team of American P-38s to just happen to be where the aircraft was as it came, into a la- came in for a landing. Because we're talking about intercepted or broken codes here. The German attempt to assassinate the big three, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, in December of 1943, came as a result of a broken code. Normally, when you break the enemy's code, you don't inform the enemy. You don't tell them, oh, ha-ha, I broke your code, because you're getting too much good raw intelligence. The British found this out early on in World War II um, because the British did two brilliant things. They broke the Enigma code because the Poles got that encryption machine, the Enigma machine. They broke the German code, but they couldn't tell the Germans that they broke the code. So in other words, when they knew of an impending target, civilian town of, uh, of German bombers, they couldn't evacuate the town. And this was one of the horrifying decisions that Winston Churchill had to make when he was told hours beforehand that the town of Coventry would be terror-bombed, he could not inform the people of Coventry to leave. And as a result, the town was terror-bombed and burned. Dozens and dozens died. But Churchill couldn't do that, or else the bigger picture would have been that the Germans figured out that the code was broken. And in the meantime, the Germans... Uh, had a huge array of agents in England. The British turned them. They actually turned all the German agents and began feeding them disinformation to send back to Berlin. And only a handful of people knew that they were actually running German agents. They were called the Double Cross Committee. And and it was a Roman numeral for 20. It was XX. The Double Cross Committee knew of, of this intelligence and these turned German spies. Same with the United States. We had broken the Japanese naval code uh, after Pearl Harbor, supposedly, but before Midway. <clears throat> In that six-month period, we broke the Japanese naval code. The, ge- the genius lieutenant commander, Rochefort, who did it, uh, was the precursor to the NSA. And we couldn't tell the Japanese that we had broken their code. We had to just miraculously have three aircraft carriers in place to defeat the Japanese at Midway. And the Japanese were so arrogant, they never entertained the possibility that maybe their code was compromised. Just as a simple operational matter, they should have said, oh, you know what, just to factor out that possibility, let's just change the code. But they did not. They were that arrogant. So then along comes this intelligence that Admiral Yamamoto will absolutely positively be visiting uh, some of the bases in the uh, in the South Central Pacific, and that New Guinea would be one of them, Rabaul, a bunch of them. He would be island hopping and visiting different Japanese forward bases, 
and we absolutely positively found out where he was going to be. And so the trick there was how do we make it look random? How do we make it look like a whole bunch of P-38s just happened to be where Yamamoto was coming in for his final landing? Well, we did it. We convinced the Japanese enough that it was simply a random attack. And Yamamoto's twin-engine bomber was sent smoking into the jungle. Yamamoto was dead. The genius who who thought of Pearl Harbor. The, The tactical mastermind that was Yamamoto was now dead. And not... One person in the Japanese high command said, you know what? Once is happenstance, they happen to have three carriers that we thought were sunk, but they weren't sunk and they happened to be at the right place to defeat us at Midway. Now, all of a sudden, our number one naval genius goes flaming into the jungle because a bunch of P-38s just happened to be there. Maybe twice is, is happenstance. Let's not wait for a third time. Um, because that's not a coincidence. That's enemy action. They didn't do that. The Japanese didn't do that. So here's the Germans. It's 1943. And supposedly they've broken the American Naval Code and they discover that this operation, a a conference called Eureka, is going to be happening in Tehran, in uh, Allied-occupied Iran, in December of 1943. Well, the deal is the... German commando, Otto Scorzini, had just freed Mussolini with this daring raid into the Italian Alps to rescue Mussolini and bring him back to Berlin just because Hitler didn't want to look like he didn't know who his friends were. So they were so excited by this, and they looked at the conditions, and they said, look, we have hundreds of agents on the ground there already. We can, if we wanted, get guys in there for a one-time attack, it might be a suicide operation, but that's what these guys sign up for. And we can get these guys in Red Army uniforms. We can get them in British uniforms. We can get them dressed as American Secret Service guys with suits and ties, but we can penetrate that embassy. All we got to do is get to that embassy. Getting to Tehran is not the issue. Parachuting in without being detected is not the issue. We can do all those things. Getting into that embassy and then getting out, that's the issue. By the way, fast forward to uh, 1979, and does this sound familiar with uh, Desert One and the, uh, the fledgling Delta Force attempting to spring American hostages out of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran? Getting into Iran wasn't the issue. Getting to Tehran, also not the issue. It was getting into the embassy and getting out. So here it is, 1943. The Germans are faced with the same problem, but the conditions on the ground are far different for them because most of the Iranian people are actually very sympathetic to the Germans. I mean, hell, the Germans had just dropped parachutists, uh, paratroops onto Mosul. The Germans had just seized the oil fields in Iraq. And if they'd sent a bigger force, they probably would have kept it through, throughout the war uh, because at the time, The Germans were pushing the British to the Nile. And had that turned out differently, the Germans would have owned the Middle East from Morocco uh, to the Iranian border. And so those were the conditions on the ground that a German could probably get help from the average Iranian, Uh, certainly the average Iranian policeman or Iranian military guy. Remember, we were occupying Iran. And in fact, General Norman Schwarzkopf's dad 
the former chief of the New Jersey State Police. He was in charge of the Iranian internal police, the gendarmerie. So the Germans looked at everything and they said, you know what? We have the conditions. This might actually work. So what really happened? This could have turned World War II. What really happened? We'll be back right after this. Operation Long Jump that uh, that never occurred and why. When we come back, Dark Secret Place, Brian Suits in here until midnight, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Here is Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place, Brian Suits in here until midnight. Um, talking about a virtually unknown assassination plot in World War II that uh, the author Jack Higgins in many ways uh, based his movie The Eagle Has Landed, pure fiction, the fictional plot to assassinate Churchill, a legendary war movie, still one of my all-time favorite war movies. But this real plot called Operation Long Jump to assassinate in December of 1943 at the first Big Three conference, the first of several conferences, but this was the first, in Tehran, in occupied Iran, of Churchill, Stalin, and FDR. A plot to kill Churchill, kill Stalin, and kidnap FDR to come to separate terms with, with America. The Germans had the intelligence. They knew that the, uh, that the conference was going to happen. By late November, it was public knowledge anyway. It was thought that by November 20th, uh, there's nothing the Germans could do, but the Germans had learned of the plot earlier. Uh, FDR was on his way on the USS Iowa <clears throat> across the Atlantic, past the equator, down south around Africa, to uh, to arrive in Tehran by late November uh, for the conference. So the Germans had hundreds of agents on the ground already in Tehran as part of their normal uh, intelligence uh, gathering activities because Iran was the pipeline for lend-lease equipment to go to Russia. So the Germans had hundreds of agents to affect this. And in fact, the, the German commando, Otto Scorzini, one of his first missions was in the mountains north of Tehran to try to get mountain tribes to begin uh, sabotaging and ambushing the supply columns. It didn't work out. The, the tribes didn't want to get involved, and they turned down the offers of, uh, of money and guns and, uh, and the whole thing. So now the Germans have broken the U.S. Naval Code. They know about the operation, uh, calling it Eureka, the... the uh, conference in Tehran. It's going to happen at the Soviet embassy, which is in the middle of, of Tehran. It's literally next door. It shares a wall with the British embassy. The American embassy is a mile away. Yes, that American embassy in Tehran. And the Germans come up with a real simple plan, and that is parachute some guys in there, um, some radio operators to give us updates um, on, the, uh, on the security measures, uh, the whole thing. And then we'll parachute in the commando team, and they will use whatever uh, transportation uh, is chosen by the ground team, the advance party. Um, they will come to a safe house the night before, uh, and we know for sure on the final night of the conference, on December 1st, 1943, there's going to be, as the British say, a really big piss-up. There's going to be a lot of drinking, uh, and no one drinks like these Russians, and if you hit this thing Right before midnight, right before that old man, FDR, goes to sleep, you're going to be able to assassinate everybody and possibly even kidnap FDR because we're looking at, uh, we're looking at Russian agents, British security, and the American Secret Service, who are not warriors, they're cops. So they have everything they need. But there was one thing that the Germans didn't figure out, and it was that 
the Russian counterintelligence, the NKVD, the precursor to the KGB, was so good. They had, even though Iran was lightly uh, armed, they had thousands of uniformed NKVD guys in Iran. And then they had a secret weapon. The Russians had a counterintelligence operative by the name of Nikolai Kuznetsov. And Kuznetsov was um, organizing and leading guerrilla groups in occupied Ukraine. And Kuznetsov was a gifted linguist. He could put on a German uh, lieutenant's uniform and pass as a German. His German was flawless. It was accentless. And he did this. <clears throat> he gravitated towards uh, certain headquarters, specifically SS headquarters. And uh, by this time, uh, he had called himself Lieutenant Streibel. And he befriended a an SS major by the name of Ulrich von Ortel, who was a SS counterintelligence guy who had been working in Denmark, uh, developing, uh, uh, you know, behind-the-lines commandos and agents and things like that. And during one of their gambling and drinking binges, Ortel revealed that he would be leaving for Tehran soon to help the plot to kill Churchill and Stalin and kidnap FDR. Now, the Russian agent Kuznetsov, calling himself uh, Zybel, could not believe, or Zybert, I'm sorry, could not believe what he was hearing. And he chased it down. And von Ortel uh, got to the point where he told him, Look, if you want to be a part of this, I'll bring you to Copenhagen and you can undergo sort of a training. You seem like a, a spiffing bloke and a good enough chap. So this was a goldmine to discover that this plot was underfoot, underway, and it was going to take place in just a few weeks, allowed the Russians an advantage that you just really rarely get. The, the Russians could have, to their credit, they could have said, pafoodle, balloon juice. That's not a real plot. That's not really going to happen. Besides, our security is going to be flawless. Instead, the Russians took it seriously, and they did not warn the British, and they did not warn the Americans. They uh, took about running this, uh, this Ortel, getting more and more information from him, uh, to a point where when the Germans began parachuting guys into Iran, Russian agents were sitting there waiting for them. Um, the Germans parachuted eight radio operators in a few weeks before the Tehran conference, and they cameled into Tehran, <clears throat> and they were taken to a safe house that a German agent had arranged for the radio operators. Well, little did they know that the German agent had been turned by the Russians all along, and that he was at their direction luring the radio operators into a trap. So the radio operators get to Tehran, and the Russian NKVD, the intelligence counterintelligence precursor to the KGB, they begin feeding these guys the radio traffic to send to Berlin. All's clear. Everything is good. Um, the conditions look optimal. Uh, the, everything on schedule. Uh, here are the checkpoints. Here are the closed streets. Here's the schedule to the conference. Everything. It looked too good to be true. And the Germans, instead of uh, simply realizing this is too good to be true, uh, they were eating it hook, line, and sinker. And so they parachuted more guys in, and those guys were rolled up as well. And there was a, a wacky series of misadventures in Tehran. There were vehicle chases. 
There were Germans shoplifting and being held by citizens, all kinds of silliness. But uh, ultimately, what was it that made the Russians, uh, pardon me, that made the Germans call off Operation Long Jump? And did they ever tell the Americans, ever tell Churchill? Well, uh, more on that in just a minute. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight talking about the assassination plot that uh, that never worked, but not for lack of trying. The uh, the plot to kill Stalin, Churchill, and FDR in World War II. Right after this, it is KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Sudson here one last time. Then we do Coast to Coast Weekends uh, here at midnight. Then I'll be back for Super Hyperlocal Sunday, tomorrow night at uh, 8 p.m. So wrapping up here, Operation Long Jump, December 1943. Uh, a very actual German assassination plot at the first Big Three conference, Churchill, Stalin, and FDR at Tehran, Iran, to take place at the Soviet embassy, physically uh, adjacent to the British embassy. The American embassy is about a mile away. The Russians have broken the plot. They know about the landed radio operators. They know the villa in their safe house where they were, and they begin running these guys, giving them uh, false messages, etc. There's supposed to be another team. The actual kill team of commandos are going to be parachuting in. Now, here's the thing. The famous German commando uh, leader, Otto Scorzini, the guy that Michael Caine is based on in the movie Eagle has Landed, he actually did a reconnaissance of Tehran. He physically came to Tehran and walked around in civilian clothes, put his eyes on the American embassy, the Russian embassy, and the British embassy. The Russians knew he was there. They could have rolled him up. But again, if they had done that, then they would have been showing their hand to the Germans that they knew of the plot. They wanted to push it as far as it could go uh, for maximum uh, effect, uh, maximum destruction to German commando resources. Um, but instead of laying the bait and running the operation like that, letting the Germans drop another group in the actual kill group of commandos, at the end, the Russians just said, you know what, let's not push our luck. Let's have one of these operators send the no-go code, and we'll just call it a day. So they let uh, Otto Scorzini, the commando leader, they let him... Uh, after he did his reconnaissance of Tehran, they let him leave. And then they had a German radio operator send the signal that the conditions had changed, security was different, and that it was not going to work. So call off Operation Long Jump or uh, Unternehmen Rosselsprung. And so the Germans called off the operation. Even though FDR had to drive a mile to get to the site of the uh, of the conference, uh, the American head of Secret Service, Mike Riley, uh, was brought into knowledge of the plot by the Russians. The Russian NKVD, again, the precursor to the KGB, <clears throat> they uh, talked to the American Secret Service during their coordination of security, and they said, we need to tell you that there was a plot. There was an ongoing plot and we're taking care of it, but it's a plot to 
kill Stalin and Churchill and kidnap or kill FDR. And we are confident that it's real. We already have guys in custody. Um, we have code books. We have schedules. We take this very seriously. We'd like to offer FDR a room in the Soviet embassy. And sure enough, FDR took that offer. And of course, the room was filled with bugs, but he stayed safe. So this is where we leave it. There are some who maintain to this day that it was a fake plot, that it was really nothing more than a ruse by Stalin to get FDR to stay in the Soviet embassy so that he could bug him. Um, there was no such effort made uh, for Churchill. But then again, the Soviets had already bugged the British embassy, so they didn't need to bring him in there. The Soviets just hadn't bugged the American embassy a mile away. So that's the reason that a lot of people think that Operation Long Jump was made up whole cloth by Stalin just to get FDR to uh, stay in the Soviet embassy. Problem is, every person involved really did exist. Every uh, counterintelligence agent uh, who the, the Soviets decorated afterwards, um, some of the Germans involved uh, will will not go into details, but they will say that it was actually a really, really silly plot uh, and it would have been dishonorable. And uh, the the Prussian uh, and, and aristocratic pride of a lot of the officers who, who were commandos in World War II probably would not have allowed them to pull the trigger, though that's a bit doubtful. If they had burst into that room at midnight, December 1st, 1943, there is probably absolutely every chance that FDR, Stalin, and Churchill, who were there at midnight on December 1st, well, they probably would be dead if, if they had actually carried it out. But the Russians uh, stopped the operation by sending a false no-go message it is interesting, though, to, uh, to read this, because FDR came back to Washington, D.C., on the USS Iowa, and he gave a press conference. And this is a bit of the transcript from December 17, 1943, in FDR's own words. This is what he said, quote, <clears throat> That night late, I got word from Marshal Stalin that they had got word of a German plot. Well, no use going into details. Everybody was more or less upset, Secret Service and so forth. And he pleaded with me to go down to the Russian embassy in central Tehran. They have two or three different buildings in the compound. And he offered to turn over one of them to me. And that would avoid either his or Mr. Churchill's or my having to take trips through the streets in order to see each other. So the next morning, I moved out of the United States embassy compound down to the Russian compound. I was extremely comfortable there. And it was just another wall from the British place so that none of the three of us had to go out onto the streets, for example. But, of course, in a place like Tehran, there are hundreds of German spies probably around the place, and I suppose it would make a pretty good haul if they could get all three of us going through the streets. And, of course, if your future plans are known, or if they can guess the time because of departure from one place, they can get German pursuit planes over the transport plane very easily. Close quote. That's what FDR said upon his return from the uh, Tehran conference. Uh, and the U.S. Secret Service was confident enough that the Russians were telling the truth that they actually did, at the last minute, change their well-laid security plans, and they actually sent FDR to the Russian embassy. Note, they didn't send him to the British embassy, uh, even though they knew FDR would be bugged in the uh, Soviet embassy. So that was a, a, a very real, actual plot 
Operation Long Jump, uh, Unternehmen Rosselsprung, uh, that the Germans did not execute. Uh, in the fullness of World War II, uh, the British executed more and better commando operations. They never went forward with their plan to assassinate Hitler because they saw no real military value in it because Hitler was going downhill fast. And they figured, geez, if we kill him, what if somebody better comes forward? Uh, it was, of course, the uh, brilliant uh, British uh, SOE, Special Operations Executive Plot, that killed Hitler's probable understudy, uh, Reinhard Heydrich, who was the Reich's protector of Czechoslovakia at the time. And Operation Anthropoid, which is the same, uh, is, is brought to the screen as uh, uh, a movie of the same same name, Operation Anthropoid. It succeeded uh, uh, phenomenally. The assassination of Reinhard Heydrich is a, uh, a legendary case study of something uh, barely succeeding, but succeeding anyway. So the, the history of assassination in World, World War II, the two most successful, of course, the American assassination of Yamamoto in the South Pacific, the genius of Pearl Harbor, who knows what he would have done tactically uh, in the closing uh, years of the Pacific War, and of course the uh, assassination of Reinhard Heydrich in Prague, the guy most likely to have taken over uh, for Hitler. And then, of course, the other assassination attempt came from German officers themselves in Operation Valkyrie, and they failed. There is a weird record of Germans thinking um, uh, top-shelf operations up, but in the end, only one big one succeeded, and that was the uh, freeing of Benito Mussolini from his uh, mountain prison. So again, Operation Long Jump, somebody ought to make a movie, huh? Uh, there's a, there's one really good book called Operation Long Jump uh, that's out there, so uh, check that out. That's the Arctic Replace for uh, the uh, the 17th of March 2018. Brian Suits here. Back tomorrow night for Super Hyper Local Sunday uh, here at KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk.